This is Tom Harvey, the Economy Guy. Welcome to the world of macroeconomics and how it affects you. I am looking at the world's economics, trying to interpret them, and more importantly, wondering where they are going and what they are going to do to us in particular. So this is your window into that world. I don't give any personal financial advice. I just give information and facts as I see them, and occasionally my opinions. I want this to be an educational show for you, so you can learn to think for yourself and make your own great financial decisions. Please enjoy it, and welcome. It is Sunday, June 6th, and this is The Economy Guy coming your way. Can you believe this year is almost halfway over? Unbelievable. What a year. What a year. Great recovery going around around the globe right now for coming out of that horrible COVID. Happy to be here. So, what is today? Today is an exceptional day for uh, this podcast. I have five segments for you. The first one is the international segment. Um, just to see what's going around the globe that I thought was important. Uh, it'll be quick and short. Only have two little items to talk about. Second is a review of the U.S. markets. What happened this last week? Oh, a weekly update. Third is the uh, last week I talked about inflation. This week I'm going to give you the other side, the other argument for disinflation or deflation uh, uh, that could be coming in the future. And I'll give you the arguments for that because there are economists out there that are uh, predicting that. I'm on the inflationary side personally, but I want to give you both sides of the argument so you can hear them and consider them. Consider them. Fourth is the main topic I want to talk about today, and it's called the Basel III Agreement, or Basel III. It's a, uh, Basel's a little town in uh, Switzerland, and uh, if you've ever been there, it's a beautiful place. So, uh, that is all about gold. It's an agreement that was made uh, hmm, not that long ago, maybe five years ago, or, or a little more than that. No, it was more, uh, more no, no, about two, uh, 2008, I think, nine, 2008, nine, I think the Basel Agreement was agreed. And uh, it was a way of protecting the world from failing banks. And, but it's all about gold, as far as I'm concerned. And I want to give you the details. I want to give you great details because it's uh, really important. I'm going to change the world in gold fundamentally uh, from what we've seen in the past. And so, uh, at least I hope it does, because I don't like the past world that we've had with gold manipulation by the big gold banks. So, with that said, let us move into the first segment. The first segment today is all about international news. I have two little stories to tell you. First one is Israel. Let's talk about Israel. Prime Minister Netanyahu is out after, what, 15 years or so of being the Prime Minister, truly ruling over uh, Israel and everything that's happening in that area. So he's out. And how did that happen? Well, in the last election, and there have been a lot of elections, but in the last election, all of the other parties, you see Netanyahu heads the biggest party in Israel, but all of the other parties got together and made, made at least 50% of the votes in parliament so that they could control things for the first time they've ever agreed it. And that's a bunch of different thinking parties, many right-wing parties. Uh, you may think Netanyahu is a right-wing person. It's nothing compared to some of the other parties that are in uh, Israel and running things. And also a uh, pro-Palestinian party. I mean, that's the extreme left side, if you want to look at it. Two, two opposites. So 
I believe that there will be in the future not so much peace and happiness uh, in that government because of the differences that the parties represent. But they've come to an agreement immediately. They are going to run the government now. And that's very, very interesting. But here's the real question for you. What's going to change? What is going to change regarding Israel? You think Netanyahu being out, everything's going to change. I mean, that was kind of my initial opinion of, holy cow, this is going to be a major disruption. I've changed my mind completely about that. I do not think, and this is my predictions now, I don't think that there will be a big change in what Israel is doing. Uh, what, what are the issues in Israel? I mean, I think there's two big issues. One are the settlements on the uh, East Bank, the West Bank. So, well, sorry, not East Bank, the West Bank. <laughs> the settlement issue, that's where the Israelis are building a bunch of uh, housing areas for Israelis to live in and taking it away from the Palestinian area that they think is theirs in the West Bank. And it's Gaza. It, it's all of Hamas. And how do you handle Hamas in Gaza? Those are the two issues. I think those issues will remain identically the same. You will see a uh, hardening in the area of West Bank housing that uh, Israel will just simply say, that's the way it is, guys. Like, like it or lump it. And as far as uh, Gaza goes, if uh, Hamas uh, breaks the current peace accord or does anything in that sense, I think you'll see an immediate retaliatory response by Israel. So I, I think no change. That's no change. That's what Netanyahu would have done in his. So that's kind of interesting, too. Uh, you, you see a big headlines, big change in Israel. There's no change. I, I think there's nothing. Probably smaller change in the social program, something like that. Okay. Next story is the, what is, this is an amazing thing as far as I'm concerned. Inflation. We're talking about inflation as one of the topics we talk about. How about what has the price of food done globally? I mean, locally in your local market, you see prices going up, but not a lot, do you? But how about around the globe? And the answer is, in the last year, prices have gone up 40% for food. That is a devastating blow for the poor of the globe. And that I consider that awful. So, and why did, what caused that increase in uh, a spike in inflation in food? It's uh, the supply chain for food got disrupted. We I'm going to talk more about supply chain problems in a few, tonight, today. Um, and uh, there's a huge demand in China. China's uh, really buying up all the food they can get their hands on in the world. So demand that causes price to go up. And there's a huge drought in Brazil, major producer of goods, of uh, food goods. And that is uh, driving prices up. So with that, kind of an interesting little tidbit, isn't it? Done with segment one. And on to segment number two, which is a review of the U.S. markets this last week, and the world markets also. The Dow, the Dow Jones, as I uh, measure of stock markets ended at 34,756. That's up about 225 points. Again, I would say that the stock market is going sideways. I don't see this as a major move up. So, but it's a move up and uh, it was up and down and all around during the week, but for a week's move, not, not such a big deal. How about the 10 year treasury interest rate? 1.56 the previous week, 1.581. Uh, down, interest rate went down slightly, but not that much. I would say it just moved sideways. So no, no change at all in interest rates. So we don't have see a major push by the bond vigilantes. 
going on right now out there. It's just in, just hanging in there. It's the, the world is waiting for what's the next shoe to drop. U.S. dollar uh, against the euro, 121.71, and, then, and the, uh, against the pound, 141.56, and against the yen, 109.48. Those numbers uh, show a slight, slight strengthening in the U.S. dollar in all of those numbers from the previous week. So again, side, basically sideways. The interest rates are sideways. We've not had a breakout up or down. So uh, I'm predicting eventually we will have one where a weakening dollar will occur, but it's not happening yet. We're just, well, we believe in reality. Reality is when it happens. Okay, how about oil? This is the one of the big things to talk about today. It is $69 and 37 cents. That's up from $66.83. I get excited in anything over 65. 69, I say, uh, I'm putting a yellow light on this one for inflationary purposes. Oil is used in everything around the globe. And so the price of everything is going to go up slightly because of this. I think we have an inflationary pusher in this, in this particular oil price happening right now. Uh, I say yellow. Not, I'm not worried about red. I, I'll say red when it gets 100 bucks. But around 70, hey, it's starting to, you're going to see it at the gas pump. You'll definitely see an increase due to that oil price at the gas pump. But you, you'll also see it in everything else, and that's insidious because you won't, you know, recognize it when it happens. Uh, that thing costs a penny more over there now. Okay, so that's oil. That was the big mover this week. Gold, uh, 1893, previous week was 1904, that's down 11 bucks. Gold went down. Gold was crushed during the week, went way down, oh, probably went down 50 points, but it ended coming back really strong at the end on Friday. So it was down only 11 bucks, slightly below the magic 1900 barrier. I see that as more testing. And you'll understand... Uh, why this happened rather than a major crush to gold when I explain in the uh, fourth segment what's going on with the Basel Agreement and how what fundamental changes are coming very shortly because of that. So with that, we're done with segment number two. And on to segment number three. This is the case for deflation. Uh, last week I talked about the case for inflation, uh, but let's talk about it. You know, well, what, where are the indicators? What's happening out there that would cause a deflation, depression, if you want to call it that, would cause the economy to sink? Uh, and what, it, what is a deflation or a depression? It's when money goes to money heaven, that debts can't be paid, and therefore the person who lent the money in the first place, place gets hurt, does not get repaid, like banks or individuals that lent money. And they don't get repaid. That's a depression or deflation. It's money going to money heaven. Inflation is money being created out of nothing, as the Fed is doing right now. Okay, history. Those are classic definitions, incidentally. What's the history uh, situation for deflation? What's Well, we've had five major bubbles in the past, uh, in the last hundred years, you know, starting back in with the Great De Depression back in the 20s. Remember the 20 big? That was a, that was a bubble. We've had five bubbles, stock bubbles, in the past. Three, the first three of those bubbles ended in a, they were followed by a deflation. And the last two were followed by a disinflation. Disinflation is a, a deflation in certain sectors, not all sectors. Partly, parts, part of the, 
economy went down, part of it went up or sideways. That's disinflation. Uh, it's not an inflation, that's for darn sure. And that is, uh, there's just a correlation between those things. Doesn't prove, that history does not prove that with this market bubble that we're currently in, that it will end in a deflation. But it's indicative, thought-provoking, right? How about uh, inflation, as we know it, is a lagging indicator. You only see it after it happens. You measure the past. I mean, that's right, what's the last measure we had? It was April's inflation rate, CPI, right? And well, we're sitting in June now, waiting for May. So it's we're looking backwards and saying, what, what happened with inflation? It's in the past. It's not necessarily in, in the future. And, uh, and it's generally you see your inflation after an economic recovery. And we are seeing a massive recovery in our economy. Remember, our GDP is where it ha was before COVID. So we have recovered and we're seeing inflation after the recovery. That's That part of it's true. So will that will it be followed by deflation? Not indicative, not a proof, but just a pointer, a pointer. And the, a more important one here is the velocity of money. The velocity of money is how many times is the average dollar spent during the year? In other words, I go buy something with a dollar and the person I gave it to goes and buys something with for that dollar and somebody else, they buy it. And if that happens three times in the year, the velocity of money is three. Okay, well, today, the velocity of money is, I mean, the number doesn't matter, does it really, how many times it is. But the number, that, because you could calculate this number, is at the historic low. It's never been this low, this smallest number of turnovers of a dollar every year, ever than it is right now, today. Uh, kind of interesting. That's interesting. I should get your attention when you're at historic places, when you're, the stock market is at historic high, when the velocity of money is at historic low. Okay. At what? The last time we had the lows, there are two other lows we had, but they were a little higher than the current lows. That was the Great Depression. It happened. We had uh, velocity of money was way down. And uh, right after World War II in the 50s, where there was a, like from 48 through 1960, there was this depression that went on in the United States. Um, and that was the other time that the velocity of money was very low. Now it's even lower. Interesting, interesting, provocative. So th this means that there are, uh, that there's a limited period of time for inflation. This could, this could mean, this velocity being down, mean that, they're, that the inflation we're seeing is only for a limited period of time, that the mechanisms of velocity being low forces inflation to come back down, forces it into a deflationary environment, in fact. That's what the mathematics says about money. So that means that if you look at the possible future scenario, and this is what the deflationists are saying, is that we are going to have inflation first. We're having it now. It will then be followed by steady prices for a while, and that will be followed by deflation, a true deflation. Now, why do they come to that conclusion? That's kind of an interesting one and not to be dismissed. First of all, uh, they, uh, they look at it, their predictions for the uh, CPI, the Consumer Price Index, or inflation as we know it is uh, for people, is going to be about 4% for the following few months. That's what I predicted also. I, so we're actually in agreement with them in, in that prediction. They go on and say that the PPI, that is the cost of goods to factories, 
that they use to make their goods, so things coming in the front door of the factory or the back door of the factory to make, to make things, are that the cost of those will increase 6 to 10% uh, and on an annual basis over the next few months. In other words, that will continue to push prices. So, and then they say, and this is interesting, that the, uh, why did this all happen? Well, it's because of the supply chain. There was a massive disruption in the supply chain during the COVID last year. Why? Because everybody stopped going out. And therefore, the places they stopped going out to stopped ordering, completely stopped, shut it off, cold turkey, done. Factories shut down because there was no orders coming in. Uh, it was uh, pretty bad for some industries and disastrous for some industries. So they say that that supply chain will recover, that we will get that supply chain back sometime and that in addition to the supply chain coming back, prices will come back also because of it. Now, that's their prediction, that prices will come back. That, Im that implies that we will get a reduction of those prices that have gone up in inflation. Now, that means that that's another part of their deflationary outlook, prices coming back down when that happens. At first, they will stabilize and they will come back down. Now, if you look at the um, CPI, that's a consumer pricing, right? That's what we buy. That CPI numbers made up one-third of people buying things, goods, and two-thirds of pe people using services. Well, if you look at it right now, that one-third, two-thirds, right, the goods side of it is booming. People are buying like they have never bought before. That's what brought the economy back. Factories are cranking out those goods as fast as they can or importing them as fast as they can, even with supply chain disruptions. So they're creating goods like there's no tomorrow. But at some point, the inventories of all the, all companies will be met and they will go to a steady state inventory place because the shelves in the inventories are empty. And that's why they were such big buying in by companies for, your, for the goods that you were buying. So what we're going to see is those shelves, fill, the uh, inventory full and the order rate reducing because of that in the future. That'll push us into the steady state, even deflationary. You can see that uh, very clearly. So, and what about the services side? What happens there? Well, I think, and uh, they are thinking, that the services side is just starting. People are just starting to go out to use services. What are services? Restaurants and hotels, mostly airlines, ships, you name it. Those are the services side. People are just starting to go out. You know, the cruise lines haven't started leaving yet, but they will be in June, July um, from the United States. That will be uh, another jump. People want to go places, want to do things. They're tired of being locked in their little house, right, with the doors and windows shut and taped closed because we can't stand that virus. Oh, my God, it'll kill you. So the uh, people want to get out. That's the bottom line. And if services jumps... Uh, what happens to CPI? Well, it depends on the price of those services, doesn't it? And I don't know. I can't predict that. But I do see that wages, the demand for wages for people working in hotels and restaurants uh, is going up. That will cause service prices to go up. That's inflationary in my mind. The uh, deflationary people say, no, this is deflationary. So I don't understand that, but that's what they're saying. And the, the, and the best argument they have is, this one. There is good deflation and bad deflation. This is the strong argument. Now, listen to that. What is a good deflation? Good deflation is 
when new technologies come along, and there's a whole bunch of them lined up to just change our world in the future, uh, when the new th technologies come along and they create cheaper prices. In other words, productivity is improved. And that's been happening in everyone's lifetime in the United States, year after year, decade after decade. Uh, if you just see it, you get everything that you're buying is cheaper or, or better and the same price. It, in any case, that is technology uh, moving along. Recently, in the last year, which is the COVID year, we have not seen an improvement in productivity in the United States. However, everything's changing. We're coming back. You, you will see, I predict, you definitely will see an increase in productivity and uh, that technology. So that's good deflation. That's causing prices to go down. That's deflation. But that's good deflation. That's the kind we like, right? Uh, you'll want to buy a bigger... Uh, faster, sharper television for a lower price. You know, that's what happened. That That is uh, good deflation. Okay, how about bad deflation? Well, the prediction is by uh, the deflationists, the people that believe in deflation, that about half of the S&P companies uh, that exist right now, about 250 of those, those are the biggest companies in the U.S., are not positioned well to take advantage of the new technology that's coming down the road. Now, what's that technology that's coming down the road? Well, pretty pretty obvious, isn't it? What's coming? You have artificial intelligence is coming big time, right? You have, gosh, Bitcoin, right? Or some use of uh, blockchain technology is going to change a whole bunch of industries across the, the world, uh, et, et cetera, et cetera. Not Bitcoin itself, not as a currency, but as a technology, as a technology. The... Uh, life extension uh, studies are going on. Uh, that will be massive in uh, the chain in what's happening to our uh, life expectancy and our pleasure of living longer. Uh, so there's a bunch of those technologies coming. You probably know more about them than I know. But those are bad things. And what will happen to those companies? Well, they will not survive. They will struggle with because competitors will come up and eat their lunch using the new technologies. That's what these new technologies are. They're disruptive. Disruptive means they destroy the old technology. Uh, what's an example of that? How about Uber? Uber came along. It's cheaper and better to use Uber than a taxi in some cases. And it's hurt, truly hurting the taxi industry. So, etc. You know what? The uh, Airbnb came along. It's a great convenience to use that to rent out a house or an apartment. and uh, But it's really hurting some hotel industry because of that. So it's disruptive. These are disruptive technologies. Self-driving cars, another example of it, coming. So with that, you have heard the uh, argument for deflation. Uh, I want you to ponder that and uh, consider it because uh, how you position yourself in your investments really depends on whether you believe in inflation or deflation coming. And that's not easy. That's why I'm talking about it. Now on to segment four. And on to segment number four. This is a fun segment. This is all about the Basel III Agreement. And this is all about gold, in my opinion. 
let's talk about the history. When did the Basel III, why did the Basel III agreement come into playing? It happened in 2008. This agreement was, it's an international agreement among various countries around the globe. That, uh, and it came out of the financial crisis. You remember when uh, Bear Stearns uh, went bankrupt and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt? Well, that scared the bejeebers out of people that banks can go bankrupt. And uh, that uh, was a tragedy in the Great Depression. And uh, we don't want it in the future. So they are trying to strengthen banks of all sorts around the globe because the globe is connected right now all the way around. And so the purpose of this Basel III agreement is to strengthen banks and to avoid bank failures like those that happened in 2008. And, and they made it out for a long time because this agreement doesn't start uh, taking place uh, until later this year, beginning of next year. So like for the end of June, end of this month, this year, all of the European Union banks will fall under the Basel III agreement. On the 1st of January of next year, all of the UK banks, which is much more important in, in this story, incidentally, because there are gold bullion banks in the UK, very few in the EU, um, will be under this. And this has everything to do with gold. If banks deal with gold, what does that mean? So let's get into it. What does it mean? What is in the heart of the Basel III agreement? Well, what happens is gold itself, physical gold bars or what are coins, physical gold, becomes, by definition, this is the definition, a zero-risk asset, according, inside that bank. Okay, it's, act, it's treated like cash. In fact, the words in the agreement say that gold is a currency and not a commodity. Now, think about that for a second. This new regulation, this new agreement, global agreement by the banks is saying gold is a currency. Gold is not a commodity, which is what, the way it's treated today. So I just think about the meaning of those words. It's, it's phenomenally strong for gold. Now, this is great for physical gold, but it's really bad for something called unallocated gold. What's the difference between allocated gold and unallocated gold? Well, allocated gold means that a bank is holding your gold in a vault and they have your name on it. You can go visit your gold. It's those are the thing, those little gold things over there are yours. They have your name, nobody else. And it's not an asset of the bank. It's your asset. If the bank went bankrupt, you can still get your gold. They can't claim it because it's not an asset of the bank. What is unallocated gold? Well, that's a situation which is kind of normal today that the bank is holding your gold, but they have a big pile of it, of yours and everybody else's gold in this big pile. So when you go and visit the bank, you can't see your gold because there's just a big pile of gold. It's not your gold. In fact, legally, it's owned by the bank, not by you. The bank, you are a creditor of the bank. You are not the owner of the gold. Big difference. Big difference between allocated and unallocated. Big, big difference. Also, allocated gold is costs more money because of the bookkeeping, if not no other reason of making sure that that gold is yours, is costs money. So allocation, allocating gold to an individual costs more money to store and to bookkeep than unallocated gold. So that's part of what's going on here. So what do banks do with that big pile of gold of 
unallocated gold that they have. Well, they lend it out. They, they make money on it. They lend it to other banks. They may lend it multiple times to other banks. And therein lies the danger. Say that there's a pile of gold, which is the unallocated pile of gold, and they lend the entire pile to another bank, and then they lend the entire pile to a third bank, and an entire pile to the fourth bank. If any one of those banks go bankrupt, their pile of gold is gone. So it is, uh, it, it gets the more bank is more lending that goes on, the more riskier it becomes, uh, and the, the more interdependent the banking system is, incidentally, too, to all of this. And there is a lot of lending that goes out from bank to bank on physical gold. Why? Because the bullion banks, that's a select group of banks that control the gold futures market. They are the banks that create the futures contracts for the futures market. And they have physical gold that backs it. But they may not be holding that gold. They may not be having the unallocated pile. They may have borrowed it from somebody else. Oh, well, guess what's going to happen, I think, in the future. I think that pile of gold might just disappear quite quickly. Because, remember, they're designating gold as a zero-risk asset. Now, what does zero-risk mean? By definition, zero-risk means that it, the gold must be a physical gold. That means coins or uh, bars of gold. It must be physical, and it must be held by the bank in their vault. That's where it has to exist, physical and in the bank's vault. Then it can be risk free on their books. That means that the bank who's holding it does not have to protect itself from losing that gold because they're not going to lose that gold. It's so riskless. It's the same as holding a pile of cash. That's what this agreement says. Very amazing. Very, very amazing. Can't be paper gold. Can't be lent out. Okay. So I think what you're going to see is banks are going to take their big pile of unallocated gold and start allocating it because it would be to their benefit to make it allocated gold because the unallocated gold, they do have to put up some money and up front in case the market goes up, upside down. Not good. Not good at all. So uh, I think you're going to see a much less speculation in the futures market for gold. I think you're going to see a smaller number of futures contracts right now. Right now there's hundreds of times the amount of gold being traded in the futures market than there is physical gold. Uh, not good. I mean, not, not really good. That's not the way the, a futures market was created in the first place. It creates liquidity in the futures market, but it also creates risk in the future market. That risk is what they're taking away right now. And it will be a voluntary thing to do. So people can pay more money for having unallocated gold or it can, the bank can make it allocated, and then the, the holder of the gold has to pay a little more money for, because it costs more money. So where does all this lead us in the future? And this is my prediction. Again, my prediction. I predict that when you go out into the open market and you buy either gold coins or gold bullion, that there will the premium for those things, which is the price over the spot price of gold, um, uh, it will start increasing. I think you'll see, I mean, in the past we've seen some pretty healthy as demand has gone up. It's been a demand driven, but now I think it's going to be Basel driven. <laughs> so, so be it. So be it. With that, there's a lot of food for thought here in this Basel 3 agreement, and it's coming down the road 
right now toward us. And it will have an influence on the gold market that we're looking at today for the next six months easily. You're going to see that. I think it, it's a very positive, positive event for the price of gold. That's the real thought I want to leave you with. So be it. Let's move on to our six precursors to a market crash. And on to segment five, the six precursors that may that, uh, predict a market crash, stock market crash. Uh, let's hit them in order. The first one is the 10-year Treasury bond interest rate, which was 1.581, basically uh, 1.56, I take that back, which was down slightly, but basically sideways. The interest rate has gone sideways, and it has been, oh goodness, it has been going sideways for quite a while now. It's since... Uh, kind of the, the mid-March. So it's been going sideways for a long time. Uh, so we can definitely say it's going sideways. That's long enough to declare it sideways, which means, see what I'm saying, looking for is a falling, uh, I'm falling, an increasing interest rate, which would cause the Fed to raise interest rates. Uh, and because the 10-year is a market-driven rate, the ten, and the uh, Fed is uh, doesn't influence it much, but could, but doesn't. And uh, and that would cause them to increase interest rates, which would definitely cause the market to crash. So that's why I follow that one. It's a good one to follow. How about the high yield bonds, junk bonds, junk bonds? When the value of junk bonds, and I'm looking at the value here, falls down, decreases. It's a precursor. It happens a week or a few days ahead of the, a full market crash. It's a very reliable precursor. But I look at a value, and the value I'm looking at is a 9.05. It happens to be the highest value I've seen ever which means that the markets think that there's the junk bond market thinks that the stock markets are as safe as humanly possible. No problem. Don't worry. Uh, and so that's what it's saying. And that's what it is right this moment. That could change fairly quickly, but you know, we'll see. Uh, third is the U.S. dollar. I'm looking for a falling dollar. And actually the dollar is going sideways right now. It's in a, a pretty narrow trend uh, it's uh, it's strengthened ever so slightly, but it's it's really uh, it's uh, it's in a, in a in a channel that's going sideways. And until that changes, nothing happening happening. We are not in a falling dollar scenario thing. If we had a falling dollar, that means that all of our imported goods would cost more money, and that would cause inflation, and inflation would kick off uh, the Fed change. So that's not happening. Not happening. Interesting. We just watch the facts here. Fourth one is the consumer price index that has, we don't have a new number for May yet. When we have it, uh, we'll talk a lot about it, but no change there. So no, nothing new. The fifth area is Fed policy change. The Fed has come out and they have all of the members of the Fed come and talk about what's going on inside the Fed a lot. They talk, 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 but they do not, have not, and do not, are not changing their mind on their approach to the economy and what they're doing with the economy. They are continuing to buy $120 billion worth of goodies and printing that much money every year. That's quantitative easing every every year, every month. Uh, and that's quantitative easing and that, that's uh, clearly inflationary. Uh, and we'll see what, how that re results. It's also what people point to as supporting the high stock market is all that extra money that's flowing into it every month. Okay, and the sixth and last item is a bluebird. A bluebird is an event, a global event, which is so catastrophic, like a war, for example, 
Uh, so catastrophic, or something going bankrupt that we don't expect. Uh, so catastrophic that it disrupts the economies of uh, one or more nations. Big event, big event. Nothing happened. I mean, there wasn't even a hint of an event this last week. So uh, uh, nothing going on in the world. There are little scares from time to time, but uh, that's why I watch the news. Just looking for the economic impact of those events. And it's worth you doing it too. Those are the precursors. There are really no precursors to worry about that are there right now. Nothing, nothing big. Uh, ask anybody out there that's listening. If you have a friend you think that uh, can uh, benefit by listening to this podcast, please share it with them. Ask him trying to increase the, re the uh, listenership of the podcast. So by uh, giving it to them, it gives them the opportunity to know it exists. It's free. And it's uh, generally good information. So with that, I wish everyone a fantastic week coming up. This is The Economy Guy signing off. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscription button. This is Tom Harvey. I'm an investor and not a financial advisor. Nothing should be construed as advice or solicitation to make a trade in any market. And I disclaim any responsibility for any negative effect of decisions made by the listeners.